the privilege and the joy that's ours this morning to come together on this sixth day of the year 2008 to consider that this is indeed the first day of the week for the consideration of Sundays in this year and how blessed it is and wonderful that we have the privilege and the wonderful prerogative of coming together today. In fact, that will in some sense relate to the lesson that I wish us to consider this morning, drawn from the fourth chapter of the Ephesian letter. It was read in our hearing just a few moments ago about the character of that vocation to which we're called and the nature of the other factors related to it culminating, at least for our lesson, in the mention of one body. Let us give some attention this morning to service in one body. By way of introduction, would you think with me of some of the factors concerning service? Is it not the case that there are times when we all appreciate the grandeur and blessedness associated with service. We each serve in some capacity, be it on a job, be it in our roles within our own families at home, but we are accustomed to the character of service. But it's also fair to say that the world in which we live, at least on occasion, misunderstands the character of service and what is involved in it. That's especially true when it comes to religious service, religious Christian service, if you will, for the next few moments this morning, would you ponder with me some of the features from this Ephesian text and use it to encourage ourselves to better appreciate what it means to serve in one body. Let's begin that discussion by first mentioning a particular kind of service with which I suppose all of us are at least in some sense familiar. That service on the job. We're accustomed to being employed by a particular place of business in which we, in exchange for the work and the duty that we engage in, are paid. There's a measure of reward that meets that service. Is it not fair to say that some things are expected of us by the employer? There are certain hours that we're expected to be there. We can't just come in when we want, leave when we want, take off three or four hours for lunch when we want not unless we have some prior approval to do those things, there are certain expectations. Furthermore, we understand that while on the job, it's not, at least in most instances, a matter of just sitting around and twiddling our thumbs all day. There's work that's expected of us, and not only work, but it's expected to be high quality and done efficiently. And then in exchange for that, we're paid. There's appropriate compensation. It would seem as though that concept of service is easily understandable, for we're easily so well familiar with it. But might I suggest we can at least use those thoughts to guide us a bit in thinking about our service in the church as well. Let's begin that journey thinking about that text in Ephesians 4, verse number 1. With these thoughts in mind, notice how that text began. We're rather accustomed to devoting great attention to verses 4, 5, and 6. That text that says there is one body and one spirit even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And without question, that list of seven ones is one of the grandest of unity passages in all of the Bible. But there are three verses that precede it. And might we appreciate verse 1 still reads, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Isn't it amazing that the word walk, W-A-L-K, appears in that text? 
might I suggest to you that the word walk, as is true of many other words in the Bible, can be used in a variety of senses. And the context must govern us to think about the character of what's being taught. We each understand that one usage of the word walk simply means to go on foot. Perhaps that's the most common usage. For instance, in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2, David walked on the palace roof, and that's when he eyed Bathsheba bathing herself, and we will remember what took place thereafter. But he walked physically from one location to another on his feet on the roof of the palace. In John 5, verse 8, our Savior to that impotent man at the Bethesda pool said, Take up thy bed, rise, and walk. Those usages of the word walk are easily appreciated. But they do not discuss all of the possible uses. Consider another. That word walk, you see, can also be descriptive of a person's behavior. His pursuit in life, his conduct. To state it the way I did on the screen, the pursued course of his action. Now, with that idea in mind, look at a few passages in which that is the usage of the word walk. And this will set the stage as we return to Ephesians 4.1. Listen to that famous text in Jeremiah 6.16. Though this was penned now so long in the past, it still is so poignant and profound. For on that occasion, God, through the marvelous prophet, said, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein. And you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Two times the word walk appears in that text. And it does not mean to go on foot. It has to do with the course of life. The second definition we just discussed. God, in essence, through Jeremiah, was encouraging them, pattern your life, conduct and behavior after those olden paths when people followed me. When Israel was truly my people. Isn't it thus ever more tragic when we notice their refrain at the close of that verse, we will not walk therein? They were absolutely rebellious and resistant to the following of the ways of God. They refused to walk therein. The next chapter, Jeremiah seven twenty three. One more time, the word walk, and again it means the same. God through Jeremiah urged them to walk in my commandments. Notice in Jeremiah 9. Similar usage of that very term. To say all of that is to say that the Scriptures are filled with that usage of the word walk. Some of the familiar texts of the New Testament even employ it the same. In Colossians 2.6, As ye have received the Lord Jesus, so walk ye in Him. It's clear that the second definition is what's under discussion. He is not discussing a physical walking on foot on a pathway known as Jesus. He's talking about patterning our lives after the character of the doctrine of Christ. To note yet another one in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. This one isn't nearly as happy, but notice there are scoffers walking after their own lusts. Perhaps 3 John, verse 4, another happy one where John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking after the truth. Oh, how wonderful it is when you and I walk appropriately. That is to say, after the character of Jesus. May I suggest to you that that's the very usage of the word walk in Ephesians 4.1. Pattern your life, Ephesian brethren. Pattern your life, Ephesian saints. 
after the character of Christ and walk appropriately in Him. How do we know that He's speaking to these Ephesian saints? That's what we're told in Ephesians 1 verse 1. That text says, "...unto the saints which are at Ephesus." As this is penned, it has thus great meaning for you and me today. How do I walk daily? And how do you walk daily? Do we sufficiently walk following the mandate of verse 1, in which he says, Worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. That word vocation, as you might have noted in Brother Fred's New King James Version, is the word calling. I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. There is a calling to which you and I have been called as Christians. This is one instance when perhaps a contrast would be in order. We mentioned earlier about taking a job at a place of employment and what's expected of us and what we expect of the employer. Notice in this instance, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. Perhaps we answered an ad in the newspaper. Perhaps by word of mouth we interviewed somewhere and achieved or got that job. How does God call us to be a part of His organization? The body of Christ. We're called in the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. The precious calling exhibited toward all humanity is such that God's grace is seen by each. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, Titus 2.11. The character of that calling does help us see that there's a bit of a distinction here. But might we go a bit deeper and also a bit further? To say that that calling is the case is to remind us that Paul on more than one occasion mentions it again. In Colossians 1 verse 10, you and I must walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, you and I are expected to walk worthy of the Lord in the language specifically mentioned, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Now, might I ask, if you and I take a position in a job, we naturally should desire to do our best and to work appropriately and efficiently. But may I also suggest there is no job on earth that can compare with the job you and I have in service in the one body. It is a very precious and high honor did not Paul write in Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It is a marvelous job to have. It's a treasured job. Have you ever known someone, maybe you've been one of those people, who has not looked forward to getting up on Monday morning and going to work? Your job is just not that thrilling and enticing and exciting it should ever be the case that with regard to service in the body, it should bring a smile to our face considering the precious nature of that body. In fact, to see that a bit more carefully, I've listed some notes at the bottom of the screen. In some ways, these summarize that which we've seen already. In some ways, they extend it just to be yet. Could it not be said that we are called preciously into God's kingdom? Paul has already written to these Ephesians recognizing the vocation to which they've been called, we've asserted they were called by the gospel. Notice the body then of which they became a member. You and I do not have to answer an ad in the paper to be a member of the church. We do not have to undergo some other kind of physical test to be a member of that blessed organization. Why is that? Christ adds those to His body. 
Acts 2.47 still reminds us that those who were saved were added daily unto the body, unto the church. Notice then what we can say about that church. Perhaps one final observation. This kingdom to which the Ephesians were added is the church of which you and I also are a part. Jesus made this statement in Matthew 16. Beginning in verse 18, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Thus, the Lord stated that he would build one organization. Namely, he called it the church. And in the next verse, to that same body, he gave Peter its keys, and he called it the kingdom. It thus stands to reason. The church of verse 18 is the kingdom of verse 19, and that blessed Old Testament kingdom to which those prophets looked and which all humanity should earnestly seek is none other than the church of our Lord, the blessed body of Christ. We thus no longer have need to wonder in what body do we as Christians serve. It is the blessed body of Christ. That organization perhaps then leads to this next grand distinction I've already listed several comparisons to working at a job. All of us understand we do not have to work at a specific job, do we? If a particular employer, for instance, is such that we desire to resign from that job and to take another job in a different company, we can do that. What about religiously? Suppose I desire to simply go over to a different church, if you will. Is that just as acceptable? Is it just as noble in the sight of heaven? Is it the case that one church is as good as another? As you know, we are now in a situation where over 600 different organizations known as the church in the Protestant history in this country now exist. Is one of them just as good as another? If one is not to my liking, can I simply turn in my resignation papers, tell the elders I'm not happy anymore, and go to a different one? What about Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Catholic? And on and on the list goes through another 600 or so. May I suggest that we've arrived at a rather distinct point. Whereas in business, one place of operation may be as good as another, what was it Paul said here in verse 4? Paul, how many bodies are there? One. One body. There is one body. Those four little words have forever quelched and done away with the possibility of multiple bodies. It doesn't matter how many men may think there are. It doesn't matter how many men might wish there were. There is only one. In the same way that there's one Lord one God and one Holy Spirit, and that's three of the sevens, he also says there's one body. Now, what is the body? Let us turn back and let the same epistle identify that for us. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, we notice that the discussion here is by the same author at the same time to the same people. And he says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave, he, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. There, in an appositional way, he has defined for us what the body is. The body is the church. 
Now, in verse 4 again of chapter 4, he says there's one body. Now, let us note the clear logic that follows. If there is one body, and if the church and the body are one and the same, it necessarily follows that there's one church. That's not Randy Bybee's conclusion. That's the conclusion of the Holy Spirit. And there's no man on earth that can change what the Scriptures have said. There is no person, no conference, no synod, no legislative, religious, organizational body that can change that conclusion that we've just reached. There is one body. Now at this point, can we not conclude the glorious wonder and privilege that's ours then of serving in that one body? For some other characteristics are necessarily true with regard to that body. Notice again in the very same letter, chapter 5, verse 23. It does begin by noting the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and what's more, he, namely Christ, is the Savior of the body. Now, Paul, what's the logic? The church is the body, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and if Christ is the Savior of the body, that means he's the Savior of the church. This church, then, of which we're privileged to serve, has as its Savior none other than the Son of God. Who's the Savior of these other bodies that call themselves churches, which are not? They have no Savior. Christ is only the Savior of His body, not others. Is it not true that a normal consideration is that for one head there is one body, and for one body there's one head in the physical realm? In fact, we appreciate that it's an unnormal thing when that's not the case. Notice what this means. Who's the head of the church? May we read Colossians 1 verse 18. Notice there he says, And he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Christ is the head of that body. He is the head of the church. Is it not then fair to conclude and powerfully easy to say that in this body in which we thus are privileged to serve, we humbly submit to Christ, for He is its head. In addition to that statement, Christ died for that body. Did He die for other bodies? There's not a single text in all the New Testament, not one, that affirms that He died for any body, religiously speaking, other than that beautiful church of which He established. Now make certain that we do not misunderstand in the sense that he shed his blood, he shed his blood for all mankind. But what body did that blood purchase? All churches, regardless of name or character? Or was it the precious purchased body described here? Perhaps Paul's refrain in, in Acts 20, 28 would be of aid to us. And that blessed text, as Paul spoke to those elders from the church at Ephesus, the very elders of the church to which this letter is written, he says, Take heed unto yourselves and to the church over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That wonderful, pure and innocent blood of Christ purchased his body, the church. Should it not then bring a great deal of respect and esteemed pleasure and privilege to us to serve in that body? knowing that it's recognized by the God of heaven, that it was purchased by the blood of Christ, that He watches over it with care and love, and that He looks forward to the day when He's going to hand it to His Father and they'll be ushered into glory in heaven. Certainly that should then be an exciting thought to you and me, to serve in that body. On that screen, 
some of those last thoughts at the bottom, I would ask you to consider with me what zenith of uniqueness that presents. We are somewhat accustomed to describing things as unique. If there's only one of something, it's utterly unique. Maybe you own an antique of some type, and no one else that you know of has anything like it. Well, I'd submit that that's a rather precious entity if that's true. But what if there's truly only one thing anywhere in the whole universe? It's not that someone else in China has one. It's that you have truly the only one. There is no higher statement of uniqueness than that, and as we've noted, there is only one body. It doesn't matter what men may concoct, what name they may give it, or what they may call it, if it does not follow the prescriptions outlined in the text of Christ's last will and testament, Hebrews 9, 16 and 17, then it is not the body for which he died, the body that his blood purchased. The church known and stated to us in Romans 16, verse 16, that wonderful text as Paul concluded the Roman letter, the churches of Christ salute you. The church then bought by Christ, purchased by him, and esteemed highly by him was known far and wide in that first century era and stands firm today some 20 centuries later. Service in one body. We haven't yet completed the fullness of our description and discussion. For in fact, that word does take us back to an innocent-looking word in Ephesians 1, verse 23. We noted this text just a moment ago. Would you please refer to it again with me? And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Might I direct your attention to the word fullness? What does it mean to say that it's the fullness of him that filleth all in all? As you and I then turn to the church, we now know that the body is the church, for that he's already identified for us. But now he goes on to say that it is in this body that's the fullness of Christ. In what way is that true? What then does that lead us to conclude? I've listed some statements. That word in the Greek means then that word fullness is literally fullness or the fulfilling of. In Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of all the human, all of the heavenly plans of redemption. And there is but one plan. That plan emanated through Christ and the church then is the fulfillment, the completeness of it. Can a person be saved then apart or without that body? Well, no. All spiritual blessings are in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. And if it's in Christ that he fills all in all. That means outside of Christ, he does not feel. Isn't it tragic and sad then to ponder the thought of leaving this life, having not been filled all in all with Christ? May I submit to you that that's a more tragic and terrible thought than any of us right now can fathom. To stand before the august presence of the God of heaven with a life of opportunities but that we're not taking advantage of blood of a son, precious indeed, that would allow salvation to occur, and yet one refused it. One did not comply with it. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. If you and I are to be filled spiritually, if we are to find the fulfilling of ourselves spiritually, it can only happen in the church. I know the television says there's a dozen self-help books in every section of any library you want to visit. 
they will never feel a person spiritually, period. It doesn't matter how noble the intent of the author was. It doesn't matter how ripe and seasoned and experienced he or she may have been. Christ is the one which has the fullness of him that filleth all in all. If I and you am to be filled spiritually, and thus to make all spiritually this life that can be made of it, given our talents and skills, it must and can only come by service in one body. Perhaps that leads me to say, in summary, how precious and treasured the church should be to us. It should be very dear to our heart. It should be something for which we long and yearn. And it should be an exciting thought to think of that glorious day when our brothers and sisters will be with us. Not in a hurtful place like this old earth and all the things that it offers to us, but in a place where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more crying. None of that thing shall mar or tarnish in any way there. This service in the body leads us perhaps then to conclude our lesson by a series of questions. Questions that are meant to encourage each of us to think soberly. What of our service then that is rendered? And what does that mean in terms of conclusion of the service that one might render in some name or by some authority different from the fullness of Christ? Does heaven recognize that service? Does heaven account to the person's character and goodness the nature of that service? Or come the day of judgment, will that service basically be of no eternal benefit at all? We can reach a conclusion, can't we? If it's in Christ that is the fullness of him that filleth all in all, then any service outside of Christ does not bring him glory. Ephesians 3.21 reminds us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Where then is Christ glorified? It's in the church. Where then is Christ's name lifted high and honored? It's in the church. That then brings us full circle, doesn't it? Service in one body. It is a tragic matter when we appreciate that some will pronounce and use the name of the Savior, but their service, according to comparison of what's in the Scriptures, is not in one body. In Matthew 7... Verses 21 to 23, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount echoed and in fact addressed this very matter. As we think about service in one body, would you revisit that text with me? Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. Let us analyze a couple of the words, if we might, and then the lesson will be finished. We notice in verse 22 that those of whom the Lord spoke called him Lord. They thought that they were appreciated, approved, and right in His sight. They'd been serving in some religious body. But isn't it amazing? In the next verse, He said, I never knew you. It's not that I once did, but no longer do. I never knew you. The conclusion, whatever body that was, whatever type of religious organization it may have been, was unknown to the Savior. No matter what name it thought it had, what impression it thought it gave, 
It was unknown to Christ. Is that not a sobering warning for all of us and should be for all of the human family? To ever understand that there is to be service in one body. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse number 10, that body is described in united terms and harmonious ones in this way. As we read that they were to be of one mind and one body, one judgment and one consideration. Today, as we ponder the nature of service in one body, it leads us to note the following conclusions. Do you and I esteem that one body as we ought? Do we anxiously look forward to the times when we have opportunity to serve in it? It is far more special and far more treasured than any mundane job that you and I may have Monday through Saturday. For you see, this particular position is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not a job we go to and then leave. We're to be in Christ all the time. And in conclusion today, that leads us to confirm just a bit about what we've learned. There is one body. And we've learned in Ephesians 4.1, we're called to service in that one body. Are you a Christian today, dear friend? Have you responded to that call that Christ has issued to you? It is such a great thing, and it's a life-changing matter. He demands that as you enter this body and begin to serve in it, you first must meet these prerequisites. Hear the Word of God. Believe Jesus to be the very one promised, the Messiah, the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. They have what have separated you from God. Confess His glorious name as your Savior. All of this is exemplified in the book of Acts. And finally, at the time you're baptized, the sins are washed away. There's not a single text that affirms that sins are taken away or remitted anywhere until the act of baptism. We see that both in Acts 22.16 and in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. And hence, baptism is that act in which we move from outside to inside the body, and at that point we can begin service in that one body. If you have been serving in that body, but no longer are, perhaps your service is now unfocused. You have failed to serve in the way that you should have. We'd be happy to pray for your forgiveness this morning as God will forgive you by virtue of the actions, we'd be happy to pray on your behalf. If either of those things would be the need of your heart and life today, will you not with a tender heart consider the earnestness of service in one body and come and make things right at once if that's the need in your life? If we could be of assistance to you, let us know that if you would while together we stand and while we sing.